Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Hello Nudgers, welcome to Obehave. I'm Mike Hughes and I'm with Ella Jenkins. Hello EJ, recording remotely again. Hey Mike, how are you doing today? Yeah, yeah, all right, all right. Um, struggling a little bit today, a little bit low energy day, I think. Oh no, what, what do you think it is? What's that? Well, I don't know, just feeling like I'm lacking in motivation today. Ah, motivation. Well, Ooh. funny you should say that because yeah. today coming up on the podcast, we have an interview with Robert West, who's actually oh. an expert in motivation. Amazing. And um, yeah, so you know uh, Robert from way back. He used to be your lecturer, is that right? Yeah, he, did. he was actually. So when I was at university studying psychology, Robert West was a uh, a lecturer teaching us behaviour change. Wow. Um, so, and people may uh, recognise him because he's been on TV a lot. He's been on BBC News a lot recently, um, talking about motivation in lockdown. So just uh, a warning. So this was recorded pre-lockdown um, when we could actually see the whites of people's eyes. Uh, we went to visit Robert. And it's a really fascinating interview, really wide ranging, um, talked about motivation the one thing that, that I kind of took away from it was when we talked about um what doesn't doesn't like what doesn't motivate people and he said when people don't feel like they have a sense of control which I thought was really interesting for us yeah definitely I think having that sense of choice or um almost just being able to have some some as you say sense of control over your own actions can be a really influential factor in whether you want to do something or not mm. Yeah, um, amazing. So yeah, the, the the Robert's work as well. I mean, he looked at the original um, Combi work. Is that right? Yeah, he did. So he was part of the team um, at the UCL Centre for Behaviour Change who designed the uh, Combi model. Wow. So he's he really is an expert in this field, and yeah, it was a fantastic chat we had yeah amazing to meet him as well seems we use combi more or less every day in our work um so the <laughs> yeah. combi model is a framework for behavior change capability motivation and opportunity um and robert helped devise that framework uh, which is used in health now how to get people to do more healthy behaviors um so a fascinating chat and an absolute pleasure to meet him yeah absolutely uh, okay. Yeah, let, let's cut to the audio. And finally, just to say, um, please do keep on sending in um, your suggestions for increasing the diversity of the speakers that we have on Obehave. How do we make our uh, speaker list as interesting, as, as diverse as possible, um, and especially even more so now as we're starting to look uh, to book for Nudge Doc 2021. Uh, okay. Thank you so much, Ella. Should we cut to the audio? Let's do it. Hello, Robert. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Um, so your work is focused on motivation. Why motivation? 
motivation lies at the heart of behaviour and of the sort of problems that we face in mm. society. Uh, so uh, it's one of a number of components that obviously go up to, to make up behaviour, of which capability and opportunity are the two other key sort of categories. But motivation is kind of like the funnel through which this all uh, ends up uh, influencing our behaviour. So um, it's, uh, it's a fascinating topic. And when I was an undergraduate at UCL, uh, it was actually taught as a topic, motivation. Nowadays, you don't see it taught as a topic so much mm -hmm. in, in psychology, but it was taught as a topic. And we studied a whole range of things from uh, motivation in animal behaviour, as we like to call it in those days, although obviously we are animals ourselves, yeah. um, uh, which covered things like um, drives, um, imprinting, um, uh, operant conditioning, classical conditioning, that sort of thing. Um, and then all the way up to decision-making, and the thing I think that's always fascinated me about it is that motivation covers all of those things, but how do you put them together into a single framework that you can then use to influence behaviour? Yeah, definitely. How do you understand the complexities of all that motivation is? Yeah, absolutely. So you've written, well, beginning to write a series of books, the first of which is Energize. I finished it recently and it was really fantastic. Um, what made you decide to write these books on motivation? I think that I had always, not always, <laughs> not since uh, I was born, but uh, uh, for many, many years, yeah. I'd wanted to uh, have the freedom to be able to capture ideas that seemed to me to be important uh, and present them in a way that people would find accessible and mm. interesting um, that are out there. They're not my ideas. You yeah. know, they, they, these are ideas that people have been studying in psychology, sociology, anthropology and so on for, for decades, if not centuries. So um, these are really important ideas, but they're not in the public domain. And um, uh, uh, or rather put it another way, some of them are, but in a way that I think doesn't quite capture the... Uh, uh, what you can do with them as an individual person, whether yeah. in professionally or whether in your personal life. So, so it's trying to get these ideas, really powerful ideas, to the public. Yeah, definitely. So do you find that the things you've discussed in your book you can actually apply in your daily life? I do apply them. You do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and have applied them. Uh, as soon as I learn something, uh, I try and apply it. Um, to give you an example, um, <laughs> my kids will tell you, uh, when bringing up my children, um, I, I'm conscious of a number of basic principles of behavioural science and behavioural change mm. and motivation. Um, I tried, at least as best I could, to apply those in relation to certain things. Okay. Now, one of them, for example, is uh, to understand that we have a constitutional difference between you and me and, uh, and different people in how well we learn from reward versus punishment. Yeah. So yeah. if you're someone who learns well from reward and mm -hmm. badly from punishment, then the, unfortunately there is a bit of a tendency as you develop to do things that you find rewarding even though social society and your parents and people are punishing you from it, for it, you're not learning yeah. One thing leads to another. Next thing you know, you're in prison. Right? Yeah. Um, now, if you recognise that uh, that 
tendency in a child as you're bringing them up, then you can say, well, okay, what do I need to do to shape that child's behaviour? Mm -hmm. um, and you, you apply that rather than uh, the thing that isn't going to work, however much you may want to apply the other. Yeah, interesting. interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed that chapter on punishment and particularly around the concept of blame mm. and how blame is potentially more satisfying for the person giving the blame as opposed to the person it doesn't really mm. lead to effective behaviour change. Mm. Um, yeah, so why is punishment not such a good me method for changing <laughs> Well, it has two problems with it. Uh, one, uh, which is uh, perhaps the lesser important, le of lesser importance, mm. is the side effects, which is that uh, if you uh, punish someone, then mm. you are a punishing stimulus <laughs> to that person yeah. uh, and they're going to em react emotionally to that and mm. to you and what you do to a punishing stimuli you avoid them mm. um, but in addition to that you feel negatively towards them which means that they'll want to punish you one thing leads to another and you've gone off on the wrong you know on, yeah. on an un uh, unwanted spiral so that's that's one side of it the other side of it is that um, punishment can be effective um, when you uh, structure it in a way which means that the person is, can very clearly avoid the punishment, what they call in the animal learning literature signaled okay. avoidance, right? Yeah. Um, and, but, it, but it's very hard to do that because the person needs to be paying attention to the cues uh, that mm. are going to signal to them that if they do this they will be punished um, and they've got to care enough about it at that time to avoid the punishment. So the upshot is is that very often punishment doesn't create the learning that you want it to learn uh, because uh, if the, if the signals aren't there for the person to be able to uh, learn from it. Um, so you end up in a situation where you've got what they call unsignaled avoidance or Sidman avoidance from the guy who used to do la uh, uh, laboratory experiments with rats uh, doing it, which is basically the worst kind of learning where uh, that you don't know that you're going to be public punished for something. You end up being punished. You, th you think it's random. You end up in a sort of neurotic state where you think, what the hell's going on? This is, this is awful. Yeah. Um, and, you, and you're not learning. So, so um, for all those reasons and the side effects I mentioned, um, punishment's not necessary. It's not your go-to thing. Yeah. Having said that, mm. in society, it clearly plays a role, mm. obviously, because our criminal justice system is based on it. And, uh, and it would be lovely to have a society which didn't need a criminal justice system, but we do. Mm. So then that raises the question of, if you're going to punish, how? How and when do you punish? And I think that's the question that um, we probably should ask ourselves a little bit more often. Yeah, definitely. So I know that you have to punish as close in time to the bad behaviour. Is there anything else around punishment that's really... And make it as definite. As so definite as it, it best yeah. not to punish um, on a sort of, on a, uh, what psychologists call a variable ratio mm. schedule. Um, the person has to know they're going to be punished. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, uh, and ideally, they need to have a sense that it's not you, it's a thing. You know, it is how it works. So you're punishing the behaviour, not the You're person. punishing behaviour, not the person, right. and it's not you punishing, it's the system. Or it, it just happens. Yeah. Um, so, for example, they've been trialling in the United States with some success uh, and uh, started to do it over here, again with some success, but, it, but I don't know if it'll carry on. Um, a system for um, uh, drink driving, where it's an automatic jail term. I mean, it sounds 
harsh, uh, but it's like an automatic day in jail or night in jail. Um, and the point about it is that it is, it is automatic, therefore no one's making any decisions about it, and therefore it feels definite to the person. And, the, and obviously it doesn't, it's not going to eliminate this, mm. and you have to think about the practical implications and so on. Maybe you can do this in the States more easily than you can yeah. in a, should we say, more civilised country. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, but, uh, but the idea, the principle is there, which is this is an automatic punishment. It, you're not going to get away with it. Mm. Really interesting. Mm. I wonder how that will play out and whether it will... Be effective or well, it, well, so far the, the trials have actually been surprising. Well, I, I don't think surprising, but some may see yeah. surprisingly good. Wow! Do you think that could ever happen here? Or I, we 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 don't put people in jail overnight by no. and large much. Yeah. As far as I know, yeah. over here, um, there's a bit of a different culture. Mm. But you can have other punishments which are meaningful um, and which are automatic. Um, and we do that to a degree. You know, we talk about automatic mm. uh, deductions from your, from your license and things like that. And actually, increasingly, you see with speed cameras and, uh, and cameras around areas where there are no parking zones, that's becoming pretty much automatic. And it's when you go from that, well, I'll probably get caught, but I I'll, I'll, might get away with it, yeah. to I will definitely get caught and I will definitely get punished, yeah. and this is definitely what the punishment will be, you're, then you're into the signaled, signaled avoidance or signaled learning yeah. situation. Interesting. So how do you think we can communicate this, this knowledge to parents, like young parents who are bringing up children? I mean, oh, it's a it's, difficult challenge. <laughs> it, is, it is a difficult challenge, and I think it's, a, it's not an all or none thing. You can just do it better than we're currently doing it. Mm. And I think, um, I used to think that uh, oh parenting classes you know are you serious you yeah. know it's kind of like something you know how to do otherwise the human species wouldn't have lasted this long uh, but the reality is that society is very complex and is changing all the time and parenting practices change all the time as they uh, as we learn more mm. about how to uh, help people to develop uh, into you know a constructive uh, human beings living in society. So I would say that uh, we could normalise the process of uh, parenting education, whether it's in schools or in other situations, um, to the extent that it doesn't just become the kind of thing that middle-class parents do who probably need to do it least, yeah. um, to the sort of um, across the whole spectrum of people who... who um, for all kinds of reasons to do with their circumstances and so on, otherwise struggle to apply you know, the kind of principles that would help uh, their children to, mm. uh, to develop um, well. Uh, and I think a lot of it, it's not whether people are good parents or bad parents, it's a question about whether, you, whether you're familiar with, whether you yourself have been exposed to, and whether you know about what are the basic principles that you should be operating. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Talking of parents, so the, com the format of your book is the, obviously the conversational style, which mm. was really so fantastic because it's so easy to digest and it makes it there's some funny humour in there and everything. Did you guys actually sit down and chat? We actually did. Did you? Yeah. We actually did. This was mm. Jamie's idea. Okay. Um, uh, I was. I have to say, 
very resistant at really? first. I wanted to write a more textbooky type book, yeah. um, which he pointed out would be quite boring, <laughs> probably <laughs> rightly. Um, but he'd seen uh, John Cleese do this in a book on depression okay. and thought it worked really well. And I think, uh, so I was one round to the idea, um, mm. not least because once we started to do it, what I realised is on a, with a subject like motivation and a lot of things that we talk about in behaviour change, um, people come to it with their own ideas. We're not, you're not, it's not like a textbook on, on biochemistry yeah. where you're, you have to learn stuff that you didn't know anything about. Yeah. But you, you already have ideas. So when I talk about motivation, everyone's got ideas about what motivation is. And so um, what that means is that uh, you're having to sort of work with a canvas that already has been painted on. Yeah. And what Jamie can do as the, as the sort of uh, interlocutor mm. is represent the reader and, and, uh, and tell me about what that canvas is. So when I'm saying something like, you know, intrinsic motivation is X, uh, you know, whatever we, I want to say that it is. Yeah. And he goes, well, but what do you mean by that? Or, yeah. uh, or you know, I've heard this. Yeah. So uh, it allows the, uh, through a dialogue, a process of helping the reader to adjust to this mm. somewhat different way of thinking. Yeah. And I think you can come back to points you've mentioned earlier, which is quite a nice way to remind the reader of mm. things they've already learned. Mm. Yeah. Really, mm. I think it works mm. really, really well. Mm. Really mm. interesting. And it's more fun. Yeah, it's <laughs> more fun for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a lot more yeah. fun. We, so there's the Cafe Bistro Laz uh, advert in <laughs> uh, in uh, Highgate, which uh, is just down the road from us. And we just sit there, put the recorder on the table. I mean, I have to say that that is just the beginning. You know, with, with those conversations, you've got like, you know, I don't know, thousand uh, pages of material, yeah. uh, which then has to be honed. And then uh, and then it's actually the book itself went through a year of editing. Wow. So uh, it's, it's actually, as you know, many people say, and it, it's a cliche, but it's true, it's much harder to write a short book than a long book. Yeah, absolutely. It's like those essays at uni when you have like a thousand words. It's really mm. tricky. Mm. Um, question, by, by talking about persuasion and kind of revealing the secrets, is there a danger of telling people how to take advantage or manipulate each other? Well, I think that uh, there is a risk of that, but the intention is completely the opposite, which is to inoculate people mm. against it. Because I think that all of the things that I talk about in the book, people are doing. You only have to listen to the Today programme on Radio 4 for about 10 minutes, and you'll see tricks number 1, 5, 73, yeah. 23, and so on. Um, and they're being used on us all the time, uh, either commercially or in politics or by our friends or by our family or by our children yeah. trying to persuade us, us of things. And so what I want to try to do with this is to help people to understand how those tricks work yeah. um, so that we can defend ourselves against them uh, and uh, as well as to... Uh, when we are trying to communicate something, to be aware that if what we're trying to do is to communicate something which we genuinely believe and, and we are honestly trying to convey a particular message, we can do it more effectively. Definitely, yeah. Um, another interesting thing which um, we've been noticing is that a lot of talking about your smoking work, there's been a lot of stories recently in the news about the potential dangers of vaping mm. and e-cigarettes and kind of other stop smoking devices. What's your uh, opinion mm -hmm. on that? Mm -hmm. Well, um, so my main opinion on it is that this is an area where 
truth, unfortunately, has been subjugated to um, people's preconceptions and their emotional reactions to things. And this is true on both sides of the debate. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't mean that in a critical way of the people concerned, because the reason why that is the case is because people care passionately about it. So on the one hand, you've got people in the field of public health who care passionately about public health and who see the tobacco industry as the devil, yeah. um, with some justification in many cases, um, and who identify e-cigarettes with the tobacco industry and with all of the sort of you know, dirty tricks that the tobacco industry got up to. So they see e-cigarettes as a Trojan horse, uh, which uh, can undermine the work that we've managed to achieve, uh, the progress we've managed to achieve in uh, tobacco control in countries like the UK and the US mm. and so on. So that's their prior, that's their expectation. On the other hand, you have uh, people who also care passionately very often, if you look at people who are most passionate about uh, e-cigarettes, they themselves stopped smoking with the aid of an e-cigarette. Mm. And they find it appalling that the health fascists, as they would see it on the other side, are denying the population yeah. this life-saving uh, intervention. So those are the two priors. And I think our role as behavioural scientists mm is to do the science, which can help inform that debate. The problem is that science uh, never speaks for itself. It always occurs in a context and is interpreted in different ways. So what we're seeing is the same data interpreted in one way by one side and in the other way by the other side. And a recent example of this is the Centers for Disease Control in the United States collects data uh, very regularly on the prevalence of tobacco use, e-cigarette use and so on. Um, and they have a, a survey called the, the National Youth Tobacco Survey, NYTS. Um, and they used that to put a statement out, which has informed their policy on vaping, on e-cigarettes, uh, to put a statement out and develop policies around control over youth vaping. And the statement was, words to the effect of, there is a, 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 a growing epidemic of nicotine addiction in the United States among our youth. Mm. That sounds terrible. Yeah. Growing epidemic. Oh, my God. So then you look at the data a bit more closely and you realise that, uh, that this growing epidemic is based on the prevalence of e-cigarette use, yeah. where e-cigarette use is being defined in a very liberal way. So, in, for example, it could be defined as ever use. Have you ever tried an e-cigarette? Or um, use in the past 30 days. Have you, have you used mm. an e-cigarette at all in the past 30 days? So when you then un unpack that and look at the data a little bit more closely, you see that the proportion, this is the real issue, the proportion of young people in the States who are using an e-cigarette who haven't smoked, because that's where the epidemic would come from, is people who are using this nicotine product who've never smoked. Uh, and what's more, they're using it on a regular basis and they're addicted. Oh, yes, it was a, it's an epidemic of nicotine addiction. And then you look at the figures and they're much, much lower. Yeah. And so it's the same data, different interpretation, different policies. Yeah, definitely. It's tricky. It's a tricky subject, isn't it? Mm. I think mm. anything that's going to be effective in reducing people, the amount of people smoking does sound like a great idea. It does it's, sound like a great mm. idea. Uh, I, I think um, 
we have to recognise that e-cigarettes are not without harm and we don't know everything that we're going to need to know about the potential dangers. Uh, but, at the same, but at the same time, uh, when data does come in, you have to pay attention to it and revise your opinion accordingly. Yeah. So I, I, re I certainly have revised my opinion about e-cigarettes because being a, coming from a sort of basic sort of psychopharmacology background in my early uh, career, um, I would have thought that if you could offer someone that gave them nicotine just as effectively as a cigarette but was far less likely to kill them, everyone would go, I'll do that. Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't need to smoke. Why would I do that? Yeah. So, but they didn't and they haven't. Mm. And so the effectiveness of e-cigarettes in helping people to stop smoking is not that much greater than our existing licensed products. Mm. Quite similar to our existing. Why? So this has led me to sort of question, I think, that sort of rather simplistic psychopharmacological model of smoking. I think, well, what else is going on? And it's certainly, from a scientific point of view, challenging and interesting. Um, but, you know, it's, it's an example of how if something doesn't fit a model, then, you know, look at the model rather than the data. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What was it that sparked your interest in the field of smoking, particularly? It was what sparked my interest in it was getting a job 15 minutes cycle ride from where I lived. Oh. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I don't like long commutes. That's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so what happened was I'd finished my PhD. Actually, I hadn't quite finished it, but I wanted a job anyway. Um, and I lived in Balham uh, and I was uh, looking for a job that was going to be close by. And a job came up at the Institute of Psychiatry. Uh, I really couldn't care less about smoking. I, I had yeah. stopped smoking a few years earlier um, and it wasn't something that particularly interested me. Uh, but I, I went for the job because it was near you know, cycling distance. And the thing about smoking as a research area is it's quite addictive uh, because it's such a microcosm of human behaviour. You've got, to understand it, you need to understand cell biology, uh, and you need to understand the role of nicotine on acetylcholine receptors, all the way up to understanding the sort of sociology and the culture yeah. and the political science of it. So it just has, it just gives you everything. And yeah. even better than that, people care about it because yeah. lives are at risk. Yeah, and it's a controversial subject, which is always yeah. more interesting to study, isn't it? So. it well, it's, it's a subject where you can make a difference. Yeah. So if I can do even a really bad job, but at least not a completely hopeless job, at, um, at helping to find ways to help people stop smoking, I can literally save thousands yeah. of lives. Yeah. Which is, that's not true for many jobs. Definitely, definitely. Where do you see the future of this area going? Well, I think it's just taking off. <laughs> I, you know, there is a tendency to think in countries like the UK, we've got smoking cracked and you know, it's, all, uh, it's all done and dusted. But smoking mm. prevalence is still 15% in this country. Really? It's going down, um, but at 15%, that's still 60,000 premature deaths a year. Wow. 60,000 premature deaths a year from 15%. Wow. Even if we got it down to 5%, which we're hoping to do in the not too distant future, that's still literally thousands of people dying early, yeah. an average of 10 years early, who otherwise would still be alive and living happy and healthy lives. Mm. So however much progress we've made, smoking is so deadly mm. that it's something that we'll always be um, uh, 
you know, I think probably for my lifetime, wanting to look at. And, in, and increasingly, obviously, smoking is becoming something which is concentrated among people with mental health problems, people yeah. with disadvantage. So it makes it even more important in society to focus our efforts and see how can we help people in those situations either not start in the first place or to stop. So I think I think um, um, although I'll be retiring fairly soon, <laughs> at least from my paid job, uh, I think retirement for academics is more a state of mind than a, <laughs> or state of salary than anything yeah. else. Um, but um, I think this this field is actually really beginning to take off, mm. um, not least because of all the science around new nicotine delivery systems and so on, which can help us to understand what's going on. Mm. Yeah, I was talking to someone recently about the potential for virtual reality in smoking mm. cessation, particularly in mental health settings, mm. um, and the possibility of people, almost like exposure therapy, but not, so kind of mm. trialling... Very much like exposure yeah. therapy, I think, uh, because obviously... Uh, virtual reality offers you a whole different experience from anything you yeah. can even get on the uh, on, on a video screen. Yeah. And having having uh, been to my brother's house where he's got a pretty fancy virtual reality, he's quite a sort oh, of wow. computer whiz. So he he sort of invested, built this really high spec computer mm. with this uh, pretty fancy virtual reality rig. Uh, and it is very impressive and you can really see how this could be harnessed in all sorts of ways because and this is what is most important to me so the to me identity is like the h bomb of behavior change yeah. in two ways one is if you can harness that energy you've got very powerful behavior change tools mm -hmm. fortunately for most of us um like the h bomb it's incredibly hard to build a yeah. good one or a working one. So um, one of the ways in which rather than shaping people's identity, you can use identity to, to, uh, uh, for influence is to find out what their identity is and work with that. So, for example, if you're trying to uh, persuade a, a pregnant smoker to engage with a stop smoking service, mm. then if that pregnant smoker has uh, an identity of wanting to be a good mother, uh, which most <laughs> women do, uh, then, uh, you know, just gently engaging with that, bringing that identity gently to the fore yeah. and linking that identity, obviously, with the importance of protecting the fetus against uh, toxins from cigarette smoke. And you begin to have something that could, um, you know, actually make a difference in terms of that persuasion. Really interesting. So what do we do if our sense of identity doesn't align with the intended behaviour change? Well, we do have techniques <laughs> as humans for making ourselves feel better about things that we do. Um, and so let's say I have an identity as a good person. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, a, I'm a good person. I, 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 I look after people. You know, I give to charity and things like that. But I find an opportunity to uh, fiddle my taxes, let's say. And you think, so how are you going to deal with that if, if what you really want to do is to fiddle your taxes but you're a good person? Um, the way that humans do this is um, a number of different ways, but uh, one is to say, well, it's not really that bad. 
you know, I can still be a good person and mm. fiddle my taxes because it's only a bit. No, you know, it's a victimless crime. Of course, yeah. it isn't a victimless crime. It's very much a, vic uh, a crime. It's just you can't see the victims. They're yeah. still there. Um, so fiddling your taxes and being there's probably a lot of that goes on or or let's say not fiddling the taxes but even just legal tax avoidance you say yeah. well you know, how can I minimise my tax liability mm. um, um, while still being a good person well I pay the taxes that I'm that I'm that I owe you know I shouldn't pay more than I owe yeah. well there is a certain certain amount of uh, you know discretion there so we can we can minimize one thing we can we can make a, a sort of uh, a disjunction between the identity and the behavior um, but probably one of the best ways that we do it or most common ways we do it is just simply not to think about it yeah and not thinking about yeah. something is a very tried and tested technique for not feeling bad about it mm. and we're very good at that um, including things like death, <laughs> yeah. because you know we're probably going to die. Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet, so you know maybe there's still a chance. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know if we constantly thought about it, you know we'd all be sort of running around like headless chickens, you know, scared to death. Um, but so we don't. So we don't think about it. Yeah, yeah. Take the path of yeah. easiest. It's fine. Yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, when I was at UCL a few years ago, I remember the learning about the Human Behaviour Change Project. Um, I think it was in quite its early stages back then. But for those who don't know, mm. can you tell us a bit about the Human Behaviour Change mm. Project at UCL and mm. what the kind of vision is? Yeah, sure. So the Human Behaviour Change Project is a very ambitious project, uh, <laughs> uh, but very doable. Um, and it is, it is to develop uh, an AI and machine learning system to read the world's literature on behaviour change and behaviour change interventions, to import that literature into a big knowledge system that can then be interrogated by literally anyone with a computer who can type in a question and it will answer the question um, about of, the, of this sort. What behaviour change intervention, what works, how well, for what behaviours, in whom, in what setting, and for how long, and why. Why did it work? So you, there's all sorts of variants of that question. So if you're a policymaker, um, let's say, and you're trying to figure out how much money you should spend on mass media campaigns for uh, drink driving, for example, you could put in, OK, drink driving, uh, how well... Have, do, are mass media campaigns likely to work for drink driving in the UK now as opposed to in the mm. 1950s, for example, where it might be very different? Um, uh, and what kind of effect can I expect to observe, right? And it will chunter through all the massive knowledge base and it will integrate the information, Not interestingly, not only on drink driving, but on things like drink driving. Mm -hmm. So it's because there's a what we call an ontology behind it, which links knowledge together, it can say, well, mass media campaigns have worked on this kind of thing in this particular way. Um, that's not exactly like drink driving, but we have reason to believe it would have this effect. So, so that the, the whole system is this creation of this knowledge base that can be interrogated. Um, and funnily enough, what we're finding is that the hardest bit, 
of this whole process is reading the literature, the natural language pro processing um, of papers that have been written up. And the reason why that is, is not anything to do with the science of it. It's to do with the fact that we, we write up papers, even now, in a sort of like 17th century style, yeah. uh, where we think it's perfectly okay to use the same words for different things because it sounds better in the English language. Uh, we express things in literally an almost infinite number of ways, the very same thing. Mm. Um, we, we actually neglect to put key bits of information in the paper, even though it's been through the peer review process. So finding this information and getting the computer to extract it is proving incredibly challenging. However, uh, we recently, I think, had what I, I think, which time will tell, I think it's a bit of a breakthrough, uh, which is that um, it's, it's become evident in the machine learning world that if you've got a lot of different sources of the answer to a question, each source doesn't have to be that accurately represented but you put the two together and you end up with this crowdsourced, accurate answer to the yeah. question. So um, the ML system, machine learning system, that we're going to be using or are using to integrate the information, uh, because it's taking information from lots and lots and lots of different sources, the capturing of the information from any one paper doesn't have to be as 100% accurate as we originally thought it might need to be. Now, time will tell the extent to which that works out, but I'm optimistic that it will. So we're developing this uh, approach, which is kind of like a, um, to be a bit technical about it, it's, it's, it's a vector space search. You create for every study a, a vector, which is a whole series of features in multidimensional space. So you locate that answer in space and then wow. add lots of other points in that space. And then when you're searching with your question, what, how does mass media affect al alcohol consumption, etc., or drink driving, you're looking for the closest point in that space to the cluster that you're, you're interested in. And it's a clever, clever technique. And uh, if it works, which I think it will, it will be pretty cool. Wow, that is absolutely <laughs> fascinating, isn't and it? we'll all be out of it. <laughs> yeah. ah, and actually, <laughs> we will... Uh, so let me give a parallel to this. When smoking ban came in, um, people were coming up to me saying, oh, you're going to be out of a job. Um, and at, first of all, I was thinking, I can actually do other things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we can't. <laughs> <laughs> but secondly, what it does, is it frees you up to do the stuff that humans are good at. And the, 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 uh, the, example, the big example, I think, that um, has been proved very successful is chess, where you think once... Uh, the, the, you know, Kasparov was beaten in as the world champion by a computer. You think, well, the, that's it. That's chess done. You know, there's no point. At not a bit of it. Not a bit of it. Now what we have are grandmasters who use computers in their preparation. Any grandmaster taking part, or in, even international master, taking part in a chess composition is not a human. It's a cyborg. It is the human sitting there at the board applying the human intelligence mm. and behind that person is this wealth of AI and machine learning to help them to do that job. And that's, I think, what we will be doing once we've got these sorts of uh, tools available to us. So they'll be there for us to use, it, you know, rather like um, 
you know, banks now have computers to keep track of your bank account. We don't need someone with a, a quill and yeah. a, 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 an ink to keep your ledger. Mm. Wow. Yeah, hugely <laughs> exciting as well. Yeah. Have you so. got... Um, any expected date that it will be ready? Or? It's, it's still very early days. And yeah. I, I th the, the, to be honest, I think the only limiting factor is harness, getting and harnessing the resources to do it. Mm. You know, with the resources of uh, DeepMind or um, uh, you know, the, the, the big players in this field, uh, one could do it uh, relatively quickly. Um, because they're already doing it in other areas. Mm. Uh, Behaviour change is not particularly different from other areas where this sort of work is already being done. Um, I think the, uh, the reality is, of course, with the way that research funding goes and also the intellectual work that's needed to create these knowledge structures, um, uh, the plan is to have a minimum viable product yeah. for the use case of smoking, which is the, our first sort of uh, area of behaviour change to look at, um, in the next, uh, I would say, couple of years, uh, an interrogatable database uh, there, or knowledge base, I should say. Um, but in, at the same time, what we're trying to do is to extend this into other areas, uh, such as um, physical activity and eating and so on, because the whole because you know the purpose of the thing is to be able to expand it into any area of behaviour change. You talked about identity being a huge factor in motivation. How much is choice a factor in motivation? Choice is a huge factor as well. Um, and of course, these things cut across each other. So if you think of identity as part of the engine yes. of motivation, yeah. um, choice is much more like the helm of motivation. So if you think of motivation as uh, all those brain and mental processes that energise and direct behaviour, then what you're talking about is, is that identity is giving you the driving force and, uh, and, and the emotional mm. uh, connectivity that, that makes you want and need to do things. And then that gets implemented in many situations by people making a choice. Mm. At some level, motivation is all about choice because that's what motivation's for. It's, it's there to guide your behaviour. Out of all the things you could do in a given situation, motivation's job is to get you to do something that's going to be genuinely useful for your, uh, for your DNA, <laughs> largely. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but not everything that we do, obviously, is a conscious choice. And yeah. a lot of the interest, when we talk about choice, a lot of the interest is actually in reflective choice, in conscious choices, when we actually think, well, what shall I do? I don't know what to do here. What is the best course of action? Shall I employ this person or this person? Shall we have HS2 or shall we do something else with the money or whatever? Shall I, how shall I invest my, my, uh, um, my lump sum, whatever it might be? So in those situations, that's when we use the word choice because we want to emphasise the fact that we are considering alternative courses of action consciously. However, unconscious processes and emotional and, uh, and drive processes actually play a massive role in that, even if we're not aware of them. So is it the, is it the perception or the feeling that we have choice rather than the choice itself? Well, that's an interesting question. I think they're two separate things. I think that the process of choice is something that we engage in 
and then reflecting on that process of choice or the uh, imagining that we could have chosen something differently creates this sense that we have free will mm. and that we uh, have agency. And of course, for human beings, the, the concept of agency as part of our identity is really, really important. Mm. If we thought of ourselves as uh, just physical uh, you know, particles in a universe just being pushed around here and there, why would anyone do anything? Yes. You know, it's, it's, it would be very disruptive, um, even though I have to say it is actually true, mm. <laughs> in yes. my opinion. Uh, but something can be true, um, but then to behave as though it's true is a, is a, is a uh, rather disruptive process. So we, we, we can act as though it isn't true. And in a way it isn't true. The, the, the person who's writing I absolutely find so compelling on this most is David Hume, who I think really nails mm, it. Yes, yeah. uh, and and he, rec he recognises even back then in the uh, 17th century, 18th century, that, um, that, this, uh, that the notion of free will has internal inconsistencies in it that mean that as people normally construe it, it couldn't possibly be true, not against any evidence base, but simply against an internal consistency base. Um, and, um, but at the same time, he recognises, as we do, that we do exercise choice. And so as creatures with the propensities that we mm. have, it's fine. You know, mm. we can go around believing we've got choice. But when we're trying to motivate other people, or ourselves around things and shape people's behaviour, you do it recognising that th that choice is something you are shaping. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have Just by the will. very fact of exactly. being involved in that choice yeah. architecture. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is one of the... I think Hume bring, brings this up, but he says, right, because you've got free will, I'm going to hold you responsible for your actions and I'm going to punish you if you do something wrong, mm. okay, so because you've got free will. Hang on a minute. By punishing you, mm. I'm assuming that my punishment is influencing your behaviour mm. and therefore I am controlling your behaviour through something which yes. actually undermines the very principle of free will yeah. which yeah, I've yeah, started yeah, yeah, yeah. with. Yeah. So there it is. Yeah, like the observe as soon as something is observed, you, you kind of change the... Yeah. The, the setup of that it's like the, the, it's the it's the sort of scientific equivalent of the jury will disregard that comment yes yeah. <laughs> i don't think they will <laughs> um earlier when you talked about smoking you touched on um motivations of smokers mm. and it, it just made me think of the more intrinsic motivations, people under more stressful situations or who've had stress in early life might look to do more risky behaviours. And do, do we have to, when we're looking at motivations in that kind of context, do we have to apply different lenses or understand it a little bit differently? I think the same principles apply, and all, but I also think we need to make, we, we need to avoid making assumptions mm. because... Um, one of the natural assumptions that people make about things like smoking and other risky behaviours or behaviours that you know, are potentially harmful mm. is that people who we think of as risk takers are less engaged with 
messages around that, around, mm. about, around risk, and they're not, actually. So, for example, in relation to smoking, people with mental health problems, people from deprived, the most deprived circumstances, um, uh, with you know, very difficult lives and very difficult um, circumstances, are people who are at least as likely to try to stop smoking yeah. as anyone else. Uh, they just find it more difficult when they try for all kinds of reasons relating to nicotine dependence or whatever. Yeah. So I think a lot of the, um, a lot of what looks like internally motivated risky behaviour is actually very often driven by the opportunity or by the environment in which they live rather than something that is inhering within themselves. And if you take someone out of an environment if, you were for, if they were fortunate enough to be transported into an environment in which uh, their lives were um, made easier, um, more fulfilling, and so on and so forth, then a lot of that stuff that we thought was about them would go away. And there's a, quite a nice example of that we published in, in the journal Addiction around what happened after the New Orleans floods, where people who were uh, incarcerated... Um, for um, drug um, problems, mm -hmm. uh, drug ad addiction, um, had to be evacuated. And then kind of on a, let's call it a random basis, but it's, it was sort of, you know, uh, sort of ad hoc basis, some of them were able to return back to their original environment and some of them st had to stay outside of their environment. And it was the ones who went back, as you can imagine, yes. to the original environment, who went back to the drug use. More commonly, it's all statistical, but uh, they were much more likely to go back to their original behaviour. Isn't that similar with schizophrenic twins and people who stay within the family who have schizophrenia within the family and then one of the twins who leaves less likely to become... I didn't know that. Um, there are other examples in drug in the field of drug addiction. The classic one is Vietnam War, where um, America was expecting an epidemic of, of opiate addiction when the soldiers came back from Vietnam, which mm. didn't materialise because it was very much located within that particular environment. So I think there's that. Um, but I also but but there is a there is an element of you know what you're saying in relation to. Um, risk-taking uh, and a propensity for risk-taking. And that definitely is there. Mm. There's no question about that. And it's also very, very clearly different across the sexes. Uh, and it's also very clearly got at least partly a biological basis in relation to testosterone. Mm. Testosterone is a, a hormone that um, has a lot of characteristic, you know, a lot of behavioural um, implications as well as physical ones and one of the behavioral implications that it has and this goes back to what I was saying earlier is it makes you less likely to learn from punishment mm -hmm. and you can imagine how that would work as you're a young adult and you need to go out to fight the neighboring um, group of people or, or the uh, or go out and catch a lion or probably not a lion <laughs> something else but essentially you've got to put your life at risk you can't be going, oh, no, I can't do that, mm. you know, because I got hurt last time I did that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so we, we, we're programmed uh, through testosterone to be less, as men, to be less res responsive to punishment, less likely to learn from it, um, as well as obviously having all those physical uh, characteristics that enable us to uh, engage in those sorts of physical 
activities. Because that raises the question to me of the physiological, what's happening physiologically, and then the environment affecting that. Because it feels like if we're predisposed to it, then the context at which we are then find ourselves in will affect how we are motivated and how we overcome yes, those things. Yes, that's exactly right. So the way to think of those predispositions is not as fixed things that will happen irrespective of the environment, yes. but as predispositions to respond in a particular way to the environment. Yes. And this was very nicely illustrated by my um, ex-boss, Jane Wardle, in relation to uh, uh, eating behaviour, where what she found was that the, the, gen, the strong heritability that exists for obesity, at least part of that is manifest by a heightened sensitivity to palatable foods. Mm. So if you're in an environment where all you've got to eat is porridge, that gene is not going to get expressed and you're going to get much less difference in body mass index. But the more you construct an environment where there's more palatable foods around, high-calorie-density high foods around, then that gene now can express itself and you start to see what we see, which is certain people being more disposed yeah. towards yeah. Um, eating more. Fascinating. Um, here's an easy one. Uh, what, are the, what are the bad ways to motivate? How do we demotivate people? <laughs> That's a good question. I've never been asked that before. <laughs> Just stop. All the big hitting questions yeah, over here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I actually can think of a, a sort of, it's not exactly how to demotivate people, but how to, how to calm down a motivation that can be maladaptive, even though it is something that is valued by society. And the sort of example I'm thinking of is where you, you have uh, someone who's working in a job, is getting a lot of reward from that job, and is getting a lot of self-fulfillment and, uh, and kudos from that job, and is getting to a situation where this is crowding out other parts of their life, and also putting them in a situation where they're very vulnerable to a, a failure in that job. And so if something happens in that sphere of their life, which leads them, which can bring that side of it crashing down, they haven't got all these other things that they can mm. turn to in their lives to, um, to balance it out and go and say, it's OK. You know, this isn't the only thing there is in, in the world. Yeah, you lose perspective. You lose yeah. perspective. So and there it is. And that, I think, is the is the answer to this which is it's not necessarily about saying hold your horses you know calm down you know uh, you, you need to be a bit less motivated but rather to build the other aspects of their lives and create this sense of perspective which we all need uh, and I think loss of perspective is probably responsible for a massive proportion of the world's problems because we get tunnel vision and we think and I mean I see this a lot with in academia where you know, you've been working on a paper or, or, or a protocol for a study and, uh, and you think this is the most important thing in the world and you're working till three o'clock in the morning and, and you, know, you, you get really, yeah, really the, caught up in it. things become less important. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then, you know, the paper 
gets rejected, mm. as most papers are mm. <laughs> in academia. You have to get used to rejection. Um, and it's a bit disappointing, to say the least. But then you think... And then later on, you look back on it, you think, eh, it wasn't that good anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what difference did it make? Yeah. Uh, and so understanding those things that are the most important things, whether it's in your job or in your personal life, and those things which aren't, and but at the same time making sure that you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a common phrase. It's there for a reason. Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much. That's been absolutely fascinating. Um, got absolute wealth of knowledge and motivation here. Um, where could people go to find out more about your books or you or purchase mm. the books? <laughs> so... Um, the, uh, the Centre for Behaviour Change at UCL has a website uh, which you can just Google and, and, uh, and find it. Uh, but if you want to find out more about motivation, the book Energize, which is published by Silverback, and you just put Energize, my name, or Energize and Motivation uh, into, into any of the well-known <laughs> online <laughs> bookstore uh, websites, uh, you can find it. And... Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a short book. It's about 120 something pages written as a dialogue. And, um, and when I look back on it, it actually contains more information than I thought it would. Uh, so it's quite dense. One of the things I really don't like about sort of pop books in science is how they just repeat stuff over and over again. I think you really could have said that in half the space. And so that's what we've tried to do in Energize. Yeah, definitely. I can highly recommend it. It was really good for you. Thank Thanks again so much. Oh, it's my pleasure.